Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. On this episode of Heart Matters, we're discussing virtual networks of care. We'll discuss what that means and the impact that it's having on how we deliver care now and in the future. I'm your host, Matt Dusick, Vice President of the Providence Clinical Institutes. And joining me today is Matt Colmia, Executive Director of Digital Strategy with the Providence Digital Innovation Group. Matt, thanks for coming today. Glad to be here, Matt. So we have we have double the Matt today, Matt times two. Well, that won't be confusing at all. Not a bit, no. Well, okay, so before we get started, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so as you mentioned, I'm Matt Colmia. I'm the Executive Director of uh, Digital Strategy with the Providence Digital Innovation Group, uh, Lifetime Healthcare Nerd, uh, before Providence, I worked in provider consulting, uh, Massachusetts Office of Medicaid, social determinants of health nonprofit, uh, revenue cycle startup, uh, then here. Um, I'm not a cardiovascular expert, um, but that's why I love having Matt on the other side uh, of this conversation, who's my, my go-to in the space. So great to uh, have a collaborator here, too. Now, being from Massachusetts, uh, we, we would call you Wicked Smart. Right. <laughs> well, I only spent a couple of years there. I'm originally from Wichita, Kansas. I don't know what they call them there. Got it. And so during the pandemic, I remember you telling me that you, like a lot of us, you went and got a dog, but then you kind of doubled down on that. And you became a new parent, right? We got a dog. We got married after a one year delay and had a baby. So we just decided, oh, we, we, I guess we bought a house right before this. So we just racked up, racked them all up really quick. Just checked off all the boxes. Mm-hmm. Cooper is now seven months old, seven and a half months. Well, congrats. Um, so you mentioned that you you worked with the Providence Digital Innovation Group. What is the Digital Innovation Group? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we call we call it DIG fondly, um, but uh, DIG is the consumer digital experience for Providence patients, basically. So DIG owns the app, uh, the website. Uh, a lot of other engagement tools to help patients get the care that they need. Um, and we work with the rest of our organization in a couple ways. So uh, one is something we call digital enablement. This is where we work really closely with our clinical and operational leaders, folks like that, um, to identify some problems that could be solved by digital. So business, clinical, operational, mission challenges. Um, and then we boil down to say like, okay, what's the core problem here? We do the five wise exercise kind of kind of thing. Um, and then once we've really crisply defined the problem, we'll go out into the market and help find solutions that will fit those needs. Uh, we bring together uh, working groups, steering committees, folks who are really experts in the space and coach through trying to find a solution that we can then pilot and then scale. We try to pilot head to head when we can, uh, but that's led to a lot of great innovations coming into our organization. Um, and that's sort of an external search, sort of a consulting project partnership. The other part, which is actually the bulk of DIG's work, is in product incubation. So we actually build and then spin out companies. We spin out a company about every two years or so, um, most recently Dexcare. Um, but we do this because we believe that the problems in healthcare are, number one, um, really, 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 really large. 
Um, and number two, that they probably need to be solved from inside the health system because the startups of the world for all their greatness and um, uh, talent don't have access to the kinds of um, tech systems, to the kinds of subject matter experts, to the kind of leadership, to the day-to-day workflows that our care teams see and our patients see. Um, and so being able to iterate from within that system is really powerful. Um, and then we spin them out because fundamentally we don't think health systems are long-term good stewards of technology, right? We've seen this before, but homegrown systems tend to not be sustained super well. And so we think it's important that uh, they see the, the disinfectant of sunlight to then uh, go out and make their name in the world. So we sell, commercialize our products to other health systems, spin them out into whole new companies and um, um, that allows us to scale technologies beyond just our system. So we're not just using the solutions or the technology to help the patients that might be in our immediate communities. We, in theory, could extend those solutions, extend that that care and that benefit um, across the country, if not globally. Absolutely. And it allows us to um, make a return on, on that investment, not just within our, our own ROI, but sort of the national ROI of a problem. So it allows us to tackle even bigger problems than we could if we were only solving them for ourselves. Yeah. You know, when I, when I think about digital innovation, it, it just, it seems like healthcare is a little bit behind in this regard. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, if, if, I, yeah. if I wanted to, or if you wanted to, we could, we could pull up an app on our phone for an airline. We could book a flight to Florida, probably in about 10 minutes tops. We mm-hmm. could get a ride to the airport in five minutes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if I needed to see a doctor, chances are I'm, I might be on the phone for 30 minutes to an hour mm-hmm. only to find out that a doctor's next appointment is in two months. Yeah. And I think that could be aggravating at best if I'm looking for a primary care doctor. But yeah. if I'm worried about my heart, if I'm worried about a lump somewhere, if I'm worried about um, headaches, that's probably an unreasonable amount of time that we have sleepless nights. So Absolutely. Why do you think healthcare is lagged behind as an industry? And then how do we align with the way people expect to have virtual access, you know, with apps and other things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we only have a half hour. I can't explain all of the reasons why healthcare is quite as far behind as it is. But um, I mean, there are several reasons, obviously. So one, it's highly regulated. That makes everything from data sharing to like new business model innovation really, really hard. The government's very involved in healthcare for good reason, but that does create uh, barriers to scale and barriers to change. It's very fragmented. Um, data sits in silos, not just between organizations, but even within our organization. It's really hard to have a 360 view of anything. Um, getting data from you know one team within our organization to another is not easy. Things are not built to be interoperable uh, and that creates a lot of friction. Uh, it's a strange business model this is one of the biggest and most underrated reasons, I think, but um, anything where the consumer is not paying directly for the service and we have this 800 pound gorilla middleman of insurance between patients and providers, um, it's hard to align incentives. Then even once you get within the system, you know there are uh, employed docs, there are affiliated docs, there are contracted folks, there are unions and travel folks. And you know it's hard to align incentives throughout a whole organization. There's not, there's not quite any industry like it. Um, lastly, you know, to their credit, we have some legacy EMRs that brought us into the digital age, like 20 years ago, uh, in ways that were, 
rapid and genuinely very helpful. But some of those same organizations don't currently keep up with consumer demand. And really, especially on the consumer side of the world, are holding the industry back. And so we as an industry need to find ways to sort of iterate around, over, and through some of these, these barriers. Um, so, oh yeah, second part of your question was like, how do we then align with consumer experiences? Like there's this gap, right? Between where consumers expect us to be and where we actually are. I think the there are a million smaller things that we could do, but the overarching thing um, that I think is the simplest way to explain it is, we've been talking about being patient-centric as an industry for a really long time. But we, we, we meant something different by that than what a patient thinks patient-centric is. And we need to become actually patient-centric. So we're great at focusing on the patient when we're, they're sitting with their provider, their trusted, their trusted doc. And yeah. that's a sacred encounter. We as an industry have done a pretty good, there are caveats, but pretty good job of protecting and focusing on that sacred encounter. But the entire process before that so finding the doctor and scheduling that doctor and preparing for the visit and checking in with that clipboard that asks whether I've gotten taller since I was there three weeks ago. like, And then after the visit, which is like all the follow-ups and filling your prescriptions and completing your referral and like understanding the bill and then paying for it, um, which is a startup I worked in before I came here. Um, and then just staying healthy, following a care plan. Um, all those things, all those parts of the patient journey, we struggled to improve meaningfully because candidly, we don't, you know, they're not, those things aren't reimbursed. We don't get paid more if somebody can book a little bit faster. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, reimbursement will align with where more investment goes, uh, especially when, like today, health systems are financially really struggling and it's not a high margin business. So the, the pull of gravity to those spaces is, is pretty strong. Um, but those things that I just mentioned, that's what, that's what patients actually experience of getting care. You know, we think of the, their experience of getting care as their time in the clinic, but it's really not. It's all of the days and weeks leading up to that visit. It's all of the days and weeks that follow that visit where they're engaging with their health and they're engaging with us as a system on a day-to-day -day basis that that's where we kind of fall apart. So we need to, to go to those spaces and make it simpler. And I do have to say, by the way, Matt. If you do have the Providence app, you can pull it up and get a virtual visit very quickly if you did have a question for a provider that you wanted to ask. So I do have to put in a little plug for that one. Yeah, that's fair. And and, be, and because this episode is about virtual networks of care, my sense is that, is, is that that alone, the idea of a virtual network of care probably means or could mean lots of things depending on your perspective. Mm -hmm. So. I think that a lot of us got very familiar with like Zoom or or telehealth during yeah. COVID, especially seeing our doctor over a, a, a tele, uh, you know, teleconference or video meeting. But what's the difference between virtual care, like true virtual care and something like telehealth? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll start by saying telehealth has been uh, fantastic for the last few years. Um, alongside vaccines, it was probably the hero of COVID. It allowed people to get care without and without adding risk to themselves or their families. It allowed providers to provide care without necessarily being in a clinic setting. Um, but um, a telehealth visit, which I'll define as you and your provider um, basically taking an in-person visit and moving it on to a video call, um, 
on your device from wherever you are. Um, uh, uh, it really is just one tool in the toolkit of virtual care. Um, so virtual care, I would say, is the broader, um, all the ways that a provider could interact with a patient in service of their care uh, remotely. And so um, it encompasses things like remote patient monitoring or text and email, like asynchronous chat or uh, automated check-ins or a virtual care plan. Um, so there, there are a bunch of ways that it can extend to other um, other geographies and other like sites of care, including in the patient's home. Even something like enabling a provider to come to your home for a visit um, can you know be sort of wrapped into virtual care because we've enabled this entire spec continuum of care via virtual. The way that I like to think of it is kind of that. Um, so like we all used to go to the bank for everything to like deposit and cash checks and withdraw money and all these sorts of things, and then the ATM came along which yes, you still got in your car, you drove to wherever it was, you had to have your like card with you, you had to have your pin, you had to, all that kind of stuff. But instead of having a teller, you just, it was automated. And sure, that was like faster and more convenient. They can put it in more locations, um, but it's still fundamentally kind of the same exchange. And when you do a telehealth visit with your provider, you're spending the same amount of time, your provider's spending the same amount of time, um, and in some ways, it's actually limiting because there's not there's things that a provider can't do in a in a, vir in a telehealth visit. Um, virtual care is kind of the whole banking ecosystem now, which includes the app on your phone, which is where I do almost all of my banking anymore. I think I have banks. I have one bank that I use that doesn't even have physical locations or ATMs. Um, and so I think it's taking that idea of going where patients are to the full the full extreme. And that's where you get really interesting business models and cost savings and, you know, candidly better care. I think the bank analogy is a good one. And I'm, I'm definitely old enough to remember those days when if you wanted money for the weekend, you had to wait until you got your paper check and then run across the street to the bank to cash mm -hmm. it and hope they were open and the lines weren't too long and, and all of those things. And then to your point, we got debit cards and ATMs and now online mm -hmm. banking. So, mm -hmm. and now you don't even have to carry your car. You just tap your phone. So it's crazy. Yeah. So you mentioned the Providence app as one of the, one of the tools in a digital care network. What are some other tools that Providence would be using for this type of care? And then how do those tools support patients across the continuum? And, you know, continuum, by the way, is an industry term that we like to use that basically means, you know, the first time you think something might be wrong until uh, post-treatment. So that, that whole span of time between symptom detected and uh, hopefully problem resolved. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, there are a few different initiatives that I'll, I'll talk about, uh, but I should upfront say that, you know, the digital innovation group is, is by no means the only, and in fact, probably a fraction of all of the virtual care initiatives that go on across the organization. Special shout out to our wonderful telehealth team, Andrea Fleming and Shireen, if you're watching. You guys are great, uh, who have built a, a, a really, really wonderful program around telehealth, remote patient monitoring, uh, engaging around hospital at home and some initiatives in those spaces that I, I'm not the expert in, so I won't necessarily speak to, but um, certainly the way that, a way that we have gone from innovation to operations uh, and gone to scale with uh, some virtual care platforms. 
some stuff that the dig team has been has worked on. Um, so part of it is that provider search and match process that I mentioned earlier. So just how do you find a provider and then get into that provider? That's We've huge. done a lot of work in trying to digitize and um, we, we talk about it as inventory. What is our provider and appointment inventory? Because creating the digitized endpoints of that inventory is how you make them shoppable. And I know that you know shopping is is it feels like a very consumer experience, but it's our goal. Our goal is for a patient to be able to search and find the provider and the appointment that is right for them in a way that is really hard in healthcare right now. So part of that is about making sure that the provider profile speaks to the things that matter to you. You know, uh, not just where they went to school and when they graduated and what their specialty is, but what's their philosophy of care? Um, what kinds of patients do they tend to see? Right. Um, if I'm a 25 year old triathlete, do I want to see the same orthopedist as uh, somebody who as, as um, a group of patients that are mostly dealing with um, you know, hip fractures in senior citizens? Um, so uh, how do we find that right provider? And then how do we book an appointment with them? Right now, we've enabled online scheduling for all of our primary care providers, those that have switched it on. This is a whole ongoing debate within our organization to get folks to switch those on. But uh, we're looking now at lab and specialty. So to help add that inventory to um, be able to direct patients to go get that, uh, that follow-up care that they need and be able to, to book it digitally um, can be like super powerful. Second, I already mentioned uh, patient engagement through our app. Our app has done a bunch of new releases around uh, with cards such that um, we can recommend a next best action to a patient. We can show available appointments with our primary care provider with that patient. They can start a virtual visit. They can book an express care visit. Um, finding a, find a provider is, is in there too, but um, also ongoing engagement tools around topics that are interesting them, to them from a healthcare perspective. So if we know that a person has a certain medical condition, how can we make the blogs that show up you know, in the scroll at the bottom of their app, be, be highly relevant to them. Um, there's a bunch of other work that's um, super interesting on around the app and the sort of patient engagement space, but we've, we've, we've uh, really come a long way in the last uh, couple of years. Um, third, I'm, you know, I worked with Matt uh, first on um, a solution called Twistle, uh, that's sort of an automated digitized care pathway solution. So, um, it's a way for a provider to sit down and say, okay, from T minus X days, uh, from a surgery, from an appointment, here are all the steps and pieces of information and education I want to provide to that patient, the surveys, the engagement, and I'm going to lay all those out and then prescribe the whole pathway to that patient so that they're on their phone, they get all the right messages, they get all the right reminders, they're fully on track with their care plan, they're fully informed, they're confident when they walk in and when they leave. Um, we've used Twistle for any number of, of clinical use cases, including during COVID. It was a huge, huge help as it helped power our remote patient monitoring program, uh, where we gave people a pulse oximeter and thermometer and told them to check back in with us when our uh, telehealth team was getting overwhelmed with um, needing to make phone calls to check in. So there are a bunch of these sort of patient engagement tools. We've been using Impulse for text messages for a long time. Um, but yeah, lots of different ways that we can try and pull together a really comprehensive sort of care engagement experience without, and this is the hard part, overburdening our providers. So making it seamless for them. 
That's really exciting. It seems like even though we might not be there yet, we're certainly moving in that direction, which is which is important. Yeah, and part of what we're really trying to build uh, on the Dig team is the set of core platforms that can power all of these journeys. So for example, Matt, if you and I were to work together on a cardiovascular journey, we would say, okay, great, we have the app, we have reminders, we have care pathways. Let's talk about what remote patient monitoring tools we would wanna plug in, what care protocols we'd want to build in to be part of this, what kinds of virtual visits, what kind of visits within this care pathway need to be virtual or need to be in person and which one can be virtual? What are the labs? What's the cadence? How do we get those scheduled? How do we make sure those referrals get closed? So to try and build out that path, that entire pathway requires this sort of engine. Uh, and we work a lot on that engine and then partner with our clinical teams to, to work on the journeys and the journeys themselves. Got it. Well, let's, let's take a moment and talk about innovation and, and what, what always kind of, you know, makes me laugh is that throughout history, we have famously resisted innovation the airplane, the computer, the light bulb, the stethoscope in medicine have all been publicly criticized as probably something that's not going to catch on by leading people within that industry. And so I think as, as we evaluate in, innovation, it's kind of important to draw the line between what is revolutionary and then what would be evolutionary. So I kind of think of it as, you know, the cell phone would be revolutionary but the latest version of the iPhone is probably evolutionary in the grand scheme of, of innovation. So how does your team make that distinction? If you're trying to think about what you're gonna focus on, how you're gonna allocate your time, how do you draw that line between a, some, a truly revolutionary innovation for healthcare and something that's probably just a, you know, an upgrade of, of an existing solution? That's a, it's a great question. And it's one that um, we wrestle with constantly because we go out and talk to our patients and our clinic teams and they see problems and they need solutions now. Um, and, and as they should, their time is too valuable to be bogged down by bad technology or bad systems. And there's a ton of them out there. Um, but a lot of times the root of the problem is way deeper than they realize. Uh, an easy example would be, how do I know how much my visit is going to cost me before I go? Right. It seems like a, in every other industry, you know, you'd never walk up to a coffee shop and just order something and then wait for the bill to show up and have no idea what it was. That would be pure insanity, but we do this all the time. Um, so we really try to address things in two ways. So one is how can we fix their problem now, right? So for example, when we were, we, we built in our express care, virtual visit, express care visits, we just have a cash price that you can definitely, we'll, we'll post it. It's definitely the max that you will pay. Um, if your insurance covers it, it could be less than that, but we make sure that we can clearly and communicate like what a price is, even though it's like totally not actually solving the real problem, but then but no we'll also, yeah, but no surprises at least. But then on the other side, we try to say, hey, okay, the, the right answer here is for us to have true payer provider interoperability such that for every patient, we could accurately tell them what their expenses would be, assuming that a visit is whatever you know includes whatever's prescribed here which it's always flexible but that we could at least be transparent in those ways so we try to do both um we try to dig really deep on the problems some of them are candidly not super simple to solve i mean the the price transparency ones i think a, a vision for a lot of us that we'll work towards over a long period of time but um 
So I think we have to try to balance those. Um, it is interesting in my role because I talk to people across so many different specialties and so many different geographies and so many different um, uh, sort of levels within the organization that I will often, and my team will often find patterns that we didn't realize that there was a one underlying problem for what's going on here. And so we can work with those teams to try to pull back and say, okay, you're trying to solve this problem and you're trying to solve that problem and they're actually related and here's how. So we can try to make that connection and try and solve for that middle piece. That's the, the super exciting part of our job because it's often a space that we hadn't, hadn't thought a lot about ourselves, but one that once we understood the root problems of say managing a patient's identity, knowing who a patient is wherever they go within our organization uh, is a core problem that has a ton of um, like downstream implications that if we can solve for, can be really powerful. So we work on things like that. Do you think that that the perception of virtual care has changed over the last few years from a consumer perspective? I mean, you know, how, how do you think that 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 current patients are are viewing virtual care? And then, you know, if you were to maybe think about like five years down the road, how, how virtual care is going to be perceived? Do you think it's it's something that you're seeing patients being excited about or or resistant to? You know, I think um, people are certainly mixed. It's like asking whether people are receptive to Taylor Swift. It's like sometimes, but maybe sometimes you want to listen to something else, right? Um, for some some types of care, patients really want to sit with their doctor. They want to go in person. They sure. want, they want that that touch and relationship. Other times, they just want somebody to you know write them a prescription for a relatively simple ailment and not have to leave their house with a sick child. And so the key for us, so overall, I think within Physician Enterprise, 10 to 15% of visits are still virtual today, now two and a half years after the, the, the spike. Um, and so it's settling into a place where virtual has become a core part of the toolkit. And I do think that over time it will increase, but I think that some of the early estimates were probably a bit uh, exaggerated. Some of the reasons were simply that like the incentives and regulatory landscape didn't really change pre and post COVID. And so a lot of the incentives to uh, do in-person care are still there. Um, but I do think that awareness and um, the breaking of the default. So the default of just, I'm just going to go in. I'm already in the office anyway. I'll just, you know, go on my way home. Whereas now if you're working from home, it's leaving the house. The I've done a virtual visit now. I have an account login. I know what it's like. So I'm not also navigating some new scary thing while I'm sick. Um, I think that that has, has put a crack in the default such that people will think whether virtual is a right option, is the right option for them with their care need at this time. So I think we're going to get there. I think we also need to make it a better experience for everybody, for patients and providers. In the emergency of COVID, we kind of all threw Zoom or whatever it was, no offense to the, the technology, uh, at the problem because it's what we had and we were ready, um, which, you know, credit to all our teams for being ready. But uh, now we need to take a step back, really design the workflows and the experiences on both sides to be re really, truly exceptional and um and build on those 
You know, I, I think that some of the concern, and, and granted, this is very unscientific, just just kind of a poll of, of friends and family. Some of the concern was, well, yeah, it's more convenient for sure. There might be better access, but but is are the outcomes going to be better, right? Will the quality of care that I get through a virtual experience, whether that's telehealth or something else, is that going to be better than it would be, or at least the same? Forget about being better than if I was sitting, you know, in an exam room with my doctor. So I guess one one of the the questions would be, you know, do we have data, or is there anything that that is out there that would suggest that there is at least equivalency? in terms of the quality of the care? And is there the, the opportunity to reduce the cost for people that are looking for it? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll answer that into in sort of two pieces. First, around uh, quality. So I can say that based on surveys, perceived quality of care is just as high or higher for virtual care, um, which is great. Um, in terms of actual long-term clinical quality, I'm not sure that we've gotten good data from that. There's a lot of selection bias in who uses you know, virtual care versus who doesn't. So it's hard to measure that. And I haven't seen anything that I trust in that space. So I won't, I won't quote uh, anything. Um, but in terms of lowering costs, I think there has long been this idea that we can reduce costs by switching uh, an in-person visit to a virtual visit. And I think it's partially true. So if all we do is take an in-person visit and turn it into a telehealth visit and spend exactly the same amount of time of the patient's time and the provider's time. We just do it over a different medium. And sometimes it turns out that that patient actually needs to come in. So we have yet another visit. We're not reducing costs, right? We're, we're, we're tweaking the model sure. a little bit. In order to truly reduce costs, what we need to do is to build a care plan that leverages the tools of virtual to engage a patient in smaller ways on a more consistent basis over time. So imagine uh, a, a patient who's seeing their provider every other month and is managing a chronic condition um, who, you know, in between those visits may or may not be well-managed. Um, but in, if they were to instead move to a model where they would only see their provider every four months, but in between would have short virtual visits, short survey check-ins, remote patient monitoring, other little tools to nudge the patient on a broader care plan and to get feedback from that patient that would be go, that would get to their provider so that they could intervene in their care plan as needed, you could offer a model like that at a much lower cost and probably manage the patient's condition a lot better. Um, the challenge there is just finding a good reimbursement model for that. So value-based care, in value-based care models, that makes financial sense for the health system. But unfortunately, in the fee-for-service world, it doesn't because none of those interim visits get reimbursed by insurance. And so we really need to tackle the incentive problem alongside the sort of technological and workflow challenges. Well, I'll tell you, it makes me sleep a little bit better at night knowing that yourself and, and your team are thinking those type of things through because I think it's incredibly complex and probably uh, challenges with no obvious answers. Um, I guess to, to wrap up, is there anything else on the topic of, of virtual networks of care that we haven't discussed or that you want our listeners to know? No, I think this was great. I love the questions. Uh, and I'm really excited for the, the, the future here. Um, thanks as always for your partnership, Matt. Well, Matt, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit bostonscientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.